Yeah, welcome to the party. What's up, Flatirons? How are we? Say what's up to the West Campus. It's been a party up there all morning as well and around here all weekend. We're going to keep going in the series we kicked off last week. Start with a story. About a, about a year and a half ago, I was getting ready to leave uh, to go on a mission trip to Uganda. And the night before that, I took my wife out down to Boulder. We went to the Chop House. I like to have a big steak before I go to third world country where I won't be able to eat for a long time. So we sit, we, we were sitting there having this, this great dinner. And then all of a sudden, she, she takes her phone and she shoves it across the table at me. And I pick it up and there's a picture on it of a pregnancy test. And I quickly like threw it across the table like, what is that? It's like, this is baby number four. You ought to know what that is. And so, so I had some terrible shallow response like men often do where I quickly said, crap, we need a bigger house. And uh, I, took, I took a couple weeks to kind of process that information while I was in Uganda and then we came back and, and I, we sat down and we're like, listen, there, we don't have a very big backyard. Kids are already bunking up in rooms and stuff like that. Maybe we should build a, another house. And so we got into the, for the third time in our marriage, the process of building a house, which is pretty stressful, lots of fun. It's, it's cool to drive by every day and see the progress the builders are, are making or not making or whatever and to kind of dream and hope for the future and things like that. And I remember this conversation I had after we moved into our house where I was talking to the sales rep in the neighborhood who was helping to sell the houses throughout the rest of the the street in the neighborhood. And I I pointed at this house where they had recently uh, poured the foundation and begun to frame it up. And I said, is that one one under contract yet? Has anybody bought that? And he said, yeah, it's under contract, but uh, the foundation's a little off and the main I-beam that runs through the house is a little crooked. And it seems like that the person who has the contract on the house is going to back out of it, even though it's really not that big of a deal. I remember thinking, not, not that big of a deal. Like if I'm that guy, I would look at the sales rep and go, so you want me to spend thousands of dollars? You want me to go in debt for hundreds of thousands of dollars? You want me to move my family into this place that admittedly from the beginning, from the outset, from the get-go, you're, you're admitting saying it is, it's messed up. It's headed in the wrong direction. It's misaligned. It's not right. It has a bad foundation and a bad support system. And what are you going to offer me as incentive for that? Some like nice light fixtures? I don't think that's going to work, bro. I, and I don't know if the original owner backed out or not. But I will tell you, every time I drive past that house, I stop for a second and just watch to see if it's going to fall down because I know it's not, it's not set up right. And the reality is when you're building a house, the foundation is key because you're going to move the most important things into that place under a roof that's being held up and supported by a foundation. And that foundation is key. And that's what we've been looking at in this series. We're, we're calling this series Big Rocks. In other words, we're looking at the most important things that have to be in place first and foremost in a church, in a community of people who worship Jesus together. We're looking at what are those foundational, non-negotiable hills we have to be willing to die on or else this whole thing will come crashing down. What are the key elements that have to be in place or else it doesn't matter what else we put in place, this whole thing will fall apart if we don't get the first things first. And last week we looked at our number one value around here, which is called biblical authority, which simply means this. We believe that the Bible is God's word and can show us a better way to live if, it's a big if, if we're willing to put ourselves under its authority. The first church was based on the word of God, and we want this church to be based on the word of God, which is the Bible. So please don't be surprised if you're new around here. Just know up front, listen, if you come in here week after week, we're going to go look at the Bible, look at the Bible, look at the Bible, turn in your Bibles. We go to the Bible week after week after week, and don't be surprised when we say some hard things. Because the Bible is full of hard things. Don't be surprised when we say very unpopular things because the Bible is full of unpopular things. Don't be surprised when we say politically incorrect things because the Bible is full of politically incorrect things. Don't be surprised when we do all these things because we believe that this is actually the word of God and it carries authority and it's helpful and it points to Jesus. And if we'll put ourselves under its authority, it will point us to a better 
Note, not easier, but better way to live. That's value number one. Now this week we're going to look at the second big rock, which is commonly referred to around here, our second value, as relational intimacy. Which means this. Jesus, because of his sacrificial death and death-conquering resurrection, is the only way for people to be brought into a permanent right relationship with God. Every word of that is important, so look at it and take it in. In other words, we're in deep. The Bible teaches we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And to quote Jimi Hendrix, there's got to be some kind of way out of here. There's got to be some kind of way out of this. And the answer to that is Jesus and only Jesus. And so let's dive in. What we're going to do today is we're going to watch Peter, perhaps Jesus' most famous follower. We've been learning a lot about him lately. We're going to watch him preach two sermons. We're going to watch him preach a couple sermons. Last week we watched him preach a sermon and the first church began. It began with about 3,000 men, which means that there's probably in the neighborhood of 10,000 people when the church first began in Jerusalem. And all they're doing right now is gathering together in each other's homes and then they're gathering together in the temple courts because for them, this is just a natural outpouring of their Jewish faith. Jesus is, after all, the, the, the Messiah that they were looking for and hoping for. And so for them, this just makes sense, and this is natural. And so we pick it up in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Check this out. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I want you to notice something. They're going to the temple for prayer, not sacrifice. I mean, historically, people went up to the temple to make sacrifices, to make a sacrifice because of their sins. It was symbolic of this, it was foreshadowing of this perfect sacrifice that was one day going to be made, the sacrifice that was going to be provided by God himself. So they're not going to make sacrifices anymore. Why? Because about six weeks ago, Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead, and he was the perfect sacrifice for sin so there's no need to make sacrifice anymore so they go up to the temple to pray here we go verse 2 and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple he asked to receive alms and Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said look at us And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you. And here we go. Underline this, highlight this, circle this. This is where we're going this whole morning today. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So here's what's happening. Peter and John are just now doing what Jesus always did. That's what a follower does. I I watched you, now I do this. And they've now been empowered by Jesus to do the things that Jesus once did. So they're able to to heal this man by the power, by the name of Jesus. And just like it always did with Jesus, it draws a crowd. And Peter sees an opportunity to preach another sermon. So here we go, verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over to be denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Here we go. And his name, by faith in his name, 
has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter's going to do what preachers often do. He's going to give you the bad news before he gives you the good news. And in ranking bad news, you killed the author of life. Pretty high on the list. That's pretty bad, and I'm not really sure what could be worse, but it's got to be top three, all right? You killed the author of life. That's bad news. Those are hard words, and we don't like to hear bad news. We don't like to hear hard words, but here's something Peter learned from Jesus himself. Soft words make hard hearts, and hard words make soft hearts. We may not want to hear it, but often it's exactly what we need to hear because hard words are often the most loving words you could hear. So Peter delivers the bad news first and he introduces this theme we're going to see play out all morning and the theme is the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. Peter says, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. I don't know if you picked up on this in our culture or not. It's this way in every culture and every place over the course of the last several thousand years. The name of Jesus is a controversial name. People get tripped up over the name of Jesus. You could say that the name of Jesus is scandalous, in fact. I don't know if you've ever noticed at award shows, people can be in a place like this. Somebody walks up a bunch of stairs, accepts an award, and says, I'd like to thank God. Nobody minds, nobody cares, nobody bats an eyelash. Somebody walks up those same stairs, accepts an award, and says, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we got a problem. Now you're being controversial. Now you're being offensive. It's always been that way, probably always will be. Look at, look at verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, and as did all your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So, Bad news, you killed the author of life. Good news, Jesus still came for you. He still came for you. He came because you are wrong and you did wrong. There is help and there is hope and there is salvation. So repent. And we looked at that word last week. It literally means to turn around, turn away from your sin and turn toward God. Then your sins, Peter says, will be blotted out, literally forgiven, removed as if they never existed. And then as a result, times of refreshing will come. You know that feeling when you've been running really, really hard for a really, really long time? And I'm not talking about physically running. I'm talking about in life. Some of you could barely drag yourselves in here today because you are so weighed down. You are under a heavy weight, a heavy burden. You're burning it at both ends and it's too much. You're at capacity and beyond capacity and you're beginning to break down physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You are at your wit's end. You know that feeling where you're just overwhelmed with life? The reality is God has always wanted a time of refreshing for his people. It's why he made these little reminders about that. Things like the Sabbath where he says, listen, one time a week, would you just put the work down and trust that I got this? One time a week, would you just remind yourself that you don't run the show? I do. One time a week, would you just rest and enjoy the good gifts that I've given you? All of that was a foreshadowing of the fact that he was going to send his one and only son to a people weighed down and burdened with with the heavy weight of sin and shame and guilt and religion created by men for people like that to be released and refreshed, restored and renewed. Peter, standing in front of a bunch of people, but just a few weeks ago, had looked at Jesus and said, crucify him, crucify him. And he's looking at people like that going, you can be forgiven, you can be restored, you can be refreshed. So listen, I know a lot of us come in here with a lot of baggage and you're going to watch people be baptized today. And here's a conversation going to be going through your heart. You're going to go, I'm sure that's great for them. 
I'm sure what Jesus did counts for them, but there's no way. I've done too much. I've gone too far. There's no way it could count for me. There's no way I could be forgiven. Let me remind you of who Peter was talking to on that day. He's looking at a bunch of people who on Sunday, the week before Jesus was crucified, remember this? They threw a party for him. They threw a parade. They coronated him as the king. They went, we'll follow you to the death. And five days later, they looked at the same person and said, away with him, crucify him. They're a crowd of sellouts and cowards and fools being preached to by the chief of sellouts and cowards and fools. His name is Peter. And Peter's going, if he can do this for me, if he can restore me, if he can forgive me, he can do this for anybody. That's pretty amazing news. That's incredible news. Peter just gets going. He gets, he, he's a preacher, so he's getting revved up, you know? So he's getting into the Old Testament. He's going, listen, everything he ever heard, everything he ever studied, everything he ever read, everything he ever taught about, all the Old Testament prophets from Moses right on up the list, they were all pointing to Jesus. They were all about Jesus. And then he gets interrupted in the middle of his sermon, which is a bummer. Check this out, verse, verse 1 of chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So these are the guys that got the ball rolling with Jesus' execution. And so now they're setting their sights on Peter and John. They're really ticked off at Peter and John. Specifically, it says the group of Sadducees, which was a religious group that was in charge of the temple, are really upset with these guys right now because they're teaching about the resurrection of the dead, specifically Jesus' resurrection of the dead. The way they taught this to me uh, in Sunday school growing up was simply this. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> see how that works? You're never going to forget that. It's, it's terrible, it's awful, but it'll never leave your brain, all right? So they set their sights on Peter and John, the Sadducees and these other religious dudes, and they put them in prison. And here's the thing, the damage is already done. It actually says that the number of men who believed went from 3,000 to 5,000. So from half a sermon, 2,000 people more now believe. That's, over, that's overwhelming. The damage is done. But now Peter and John, they get to sit in prison and think about this and stew on this. And Peter, remember his background? He has a history of backing down. When things get hard, Peter runs. wonder what he's going to do today. Check verse 5 out. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, here we go, by what power or by what name did you do this? He's now standing in front of the high priestly family. He was the one, Peter was the one who stood in the courtyard of the high priest while Jesus was being questioned and denied Jesus three times. He's standing in front of these dudes, just like Jesus did. And now they demand to know, by what name, by what power, by what authority are you doing these things? They're so concerned about the name of Jesus. Look how Peter responds, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do a series on the Holy Spirit in a few weeks. Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man's been healed? All right, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Wow, Peter's different. Peter's different now. 
It's as if he goes, okay, gather around. You want to know by what name, by whose power, by what authority we're doing these things? All right, all right, listen up. Read my lips by the name. He doesn't say God. He doesn't say some higher power. He says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by the way. Am I clear enough for you? Do you need me to repeat myself? That's what Peter's doing. Something is drastically different about Peter right now. And he keeps going. And what Peter's going to do right now is he's going to roll out the most offensive thing you could have said 2,000 years ago. And it's still today the most offensive thing you can say right now today. And this is what he says. Look at verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's that whole stone thing again. You guys, you guys are awake this morning. I like that. There's that whole stone thing we've been talking about. He, he, you guys rejected him. Builders went, no, that won't work. And he goes, the problem with that is he's the cornerstone. In other words, Peter's going, the prob- problem with rejecting Jesus is, is he's the most important thing in the universe. Everything without him falls apart. If you set up your life apart from Jesus, everything from the onset gets out of order, crooked and bent, like a house with a bad foundation. You start to build apart from Jesus. The whole thing will eventually come crashing down on you, including your life. So you can spend your life in your best efforts trying to be a good person and you'll end up being a relatively good person but you'll lose your soul is what the bible teaches you can spend your life even helping people you'll help a lot of people you'll lose your soul apart from jesus you you can spend your life trying to chase after fame and fortune and status and wealth and all those kinds of things and what the bible teaches is this it'll be like you spent your life chasing the wind it's been windy lately anybody try to chase it and catch it Why would you not do that? Because it's impossible. You can never get a hold of it. You can never make it stop. You can never grasp it. And at the end of your life, when you chase all those things apart from Jesus, it will be like you spent your life chasing the wind. You'll come up empty-handed. On the other end of the spectrum, if you build your life on this cornerstone, on this rock that is Jesus, you build your life on him, and everything heads in the right direction. Problem is, not only is Jesus a cornerstone, the Bible teaches he's also a stumbling stone. Isaiah said this hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born about Jesus. He prophesied about him and said, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. The phrase stumbling stone in the Greek is one word. It's scandalon. It's where we get our word scandalous. In other words, it means to be tripped up over. See, for some people, for many of us in this room, and I've seen it happen over and over again this weekend, the name of Jesus is a sanctuary. It's a place where we run to. It's the only place we find uh, refreshing and salvation and hope and mercy and grace and forgiveness and a million other blessings. But for others of us in this room, the name of Jesus is offensive and it's scandalous and it trips people up. I remember sitting across the table from a buddy of mine I was getting to know a few years ago, and he had just started coming to Flatirons for a short amount of time. We're having, we're having lunch on this day, and I go, how's it going? How do you like Flatirons and all that kind of thing? And he looked at me, and he went, you know, I'm really enjoying Flatirons. It's a really cool place to hang out and everything. And then he kind of paused for a second, and then he looked at me, and he went, yeah, but I just can't get with the whole Jesus thing. And I said, I get it, man. I get it. Just keep, just keep coming. And I loved that conversation. You know why? Because it indicated two things about our church that I think are really important. Number one, he was welcome here. He felt like he could belong here before he ever believed. That's important. Number two, from the onset, he was clear that we believe salvation comes through no one else but Jesus. And the cool part is, I got to baptize him in the name of Jesus with a couple of my brothers at the men's retreat last year. 
here's, here's another great part. I'll add this in. So he was at the last service, and I went back here to, to go to the bathroom. I checked my phone. I had a text message from him, and he said, funny thing is, I was sitting there listening to this story, and in his mind, he was going, man, this guy's really missing out on the whole Jesus thing. <laughs> and he went, I didn't realize till the end of the story, and you talked about the baptism, that you were talking about me. He's like, guess Jesus does change people. That's what he says. Pretty cool. See, Peter wasn't saying this for shock value. Peter was saying this because all he's doing is saying what Jesus said. That's all we're trying to do around here. Just say what Jesus said. Peter's just delivering the news. He's not writing the news. He's just delivering the news. He's going, listen, this is the same thing Jesus always said. Jesus said this in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And people get tripped up on that statement. People like to cut that one right out of the Bible because that sounds so exclusive and arrogant and unloving. Right. Unless it's true, then it's actually the most helpful and loving news you could ever deliver to anyone. And it'd be the most unloving thing ever to not deliver that news to someone who needs to hear it. So if people are going to get tripped up, let it be over the name of Jesus and only over the name of Jesus. And one of the problems I've seen in the church over the course of my entire life is before people ever get an opportunity to bump into Jesus, there's about a thousand other stumbling stones along the way not named Jesus. Things that get in the way, things that trip people up. Before anybody even gets a chance to bump into Jesus, they go, I'm out. So I got this other friend. That's right, I have two. Awesome. <laughs> and he's a, <laughs> he's a self-proclaimed atheist, although I think he's an agnostic, but we won't quibble over terms, all right? He, he, uh, he, d- he does not believe that Jesus came to this earth, paid the penalty for his sins so that he could have a relationship with God forever. He doesn't believe in that. John 3.16, no, I don't believe that, all right? So now, as we've gotten to know each other, and we've gotten to know each other relatively well for the past several months, over the course of these conversations, it's been, become pretty clear that his two main objections to faith in Jesus have nothing to do with Jesus. The two things are science and Christians, His problem's not with Jesus. His problem are these other two things. And so with the science thing, I mean, I kind of dig science. I didn't get good grades in science, but that doesn't narrow the field. I didn't get good grades in anything, but I kind of like science. And so so I did a seminar class a few years ago called Science and Christianity. That's online. You can go check that out if you want. And I think we've historically, Christians, done a pretty bad job of representing ourselves in the scientific world because there are lots and lots and lots of scientists who see absolutely no conflict between their belief and what what they do for a living. The guy who ran the Human Genome Project for crying out loud as a Christian. He wrote a book called The Language of God. Go check that out if you're scientifically minded. One of my heroes in in my life is my grandfather, who's a retired colonel in the Air Force, a PhD in physiology, has his master's in divinity from Dallas Theological Seminary and taught the Old Testament for many, many years. Being smart and being a Christian are not mutually exclusive. But here's here's my thought. I don't think science is my friend's biggest issue. I've told him this. His biggest issue that seems to come up is is Christians. I think that's the real problem for him. The ones he's come into contact with, some of them, there's a couple of them that, honestly, they're kind of crazy. Some of them are kind of idiots. And here's the one that really gets me. A lot of them demand that his behavior line up with their beliefs, even though he doesn't share their beliefs. Scientifically speaking, that's called getting the cart before the horse. It doesn't even make any sense. He doesn't like Christians who make political persuasions a litmus test for faith. Christians who align things Jesus never talked about or never said with Christianity. Christians who are judgmental, stupid, and hypocritical. People who put a heavy load on people but won't do anything to carry it themselves. And my friend says, why would I want to be a part of that? Why would I want to be in for that? I'm out. I don't want to be like that. Here's the other thing. As I've gotten to get to know my friend, he's, he's, he's a good leader. He's a good businessman. He's a good husband. He's a good father. 
We have long talks about family and leadership and kids and all kinds of things. And here's the weird part. On most of those things, most of the time, we agree. And when he sits and he starts telling me stories about some some Christians in his life, I'm like, bro, I'm with you. I don't like them either. I'm on your team on this one. I'm on your your side. He texted me the other day. He said, you know what I think we ought to do? We ought to do a podcast called The Atheist and the Pastor. I was like, I'm in. I'm in. And he said, and I think he's serious about this, so... It might happen. I don't know. He, he, goes, he goes, the premise of it needs to be that people would expect us to disagree on most things, but we actually end up agreeing on a whole lot of stuff. I said, I, I, I'm in. Now, here's the other thing. My friend totally knows where I'm at. He knows where I stand and he knows what I believe. He knows that I believe Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only way to be forgiven and reconnected to God. And my friend, here's one of the things I love about him. He doesn't pull any punches. When he asks you a question, it's direct. He doesn't, he doesn't worry about whether he's going to really hurt your feelings with it or not. He doesn't worry about whether it shocks you or not. He just asks a question. So this one time we're having this conversation in the middle of the night in Vegas at a bar in MGM Grand called Whiskey Down. Don't judge me. I saw some of you there, all right? So we're having this, we're having this conversation about Christianity, literally in the middle of the night in Vegas. And it was a great conversation. In the middle of it, my friend looks at me and goes, so Scott, do you think I'm going to hell? I don't know what you would have said in that situation, but I looked right at my friend and I said, yes but I don't want you to, and you don't have to, bro. Now, here, here's the thing. It's interesting. He didn't punch me. He, uh, he didn't even get mad at me. He almost seemed, and I think he actually was, thankful that I gave him an honest answer. Now, I, didn't want, I went back and forth on whether to even tell you this whole story this weekend, because here's the reality. I'm going to get lit up by everybody for this one. I'm going to get yelled at. I'm going to get, my email's going to go through the roof. I'm, and people are going to, I'm afraid some people are going to make the wrong conclusions from that story. So, so here's one. Do not do this, okay? I do not want, to, want a bunch of Bible-thumping morons to go hear what I just said and go make some signs that say turn or burn and get on the street corner and start yelling at people. That's not the takeaway. Notice that this conversation happened in the context of a relationship, right? I had the right. He asked me the question. See, a lot of Christians, they give, this, they give off the vibe that they're actually happy that some people are going to hell, which is nothing like Jesus' attitude. I'm also going to get yelled at by a bunch of people who want to pick and choose what to cut out of the Bible and what to keep, and they're going to be blown away that I would be so hateful as to, wait for it, teach what Jesus taught. Do you remember value number one? I'm not at liberty to tell Jesus to shut up, don't say that, that's offensive. My job is to say, this is what he said. This is what he said. I, I don't have the liberty to go, this isn't in the Bible, because it is in the Bible. Jesus taught about hell more than anybody else in the Bible, but he never did it with a smile on his face and a condescending grin as if he was happy about it. He did it as the person who left the comfort of heaven and came down to the cesspool called planet Earth to rescue us from hell. That's why he came. And then I'm going to have people who are going to go, well, Scott, did you, did you lead him in the sinner's prayer right there in Las Vegas? God help us all, you know, did you? <laughs> No, no, the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. That just upped my email account, yep. It's not, I'm fine with the sinner's prayer, it's just not in the Bible, so quit acting like it is, all right? My, listen, my friend knows a couple things about me. Number one, I care about him, he's my friend, whether he ever believes or not. In other words, he's not my project, he's my friend. The second thing is this, he knows. I would love for him to come to faith in Jesus. I would love to sit in heaven with him one day and laugh about the fact that we had a podcast called The Atheist and the Pastor. And I'll get to go, I win. <laughs> you know, I, I think that'll be great. Here's the other thing, though. I can't make that happen. 
You know why? Because if I was wearing a name tag, you know what name would not be on it? Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I am not him. I cannot manipulate this to happen. I can't force this to happen. This is between my friend and Jesus. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to work really, really hard to show him who Jesus is and what he's like. And he's nothing like some of the Christians he's had to deal with. The rest is up to Jesus. So when Peter rolls out this offensive statement, this politically incorrect, socially unacceptable truth, and he puts it on the table, it sets the tone. It sets the tone for this persecution that's going to break out relatively shortly that we're going to see in this series where, where Rome now has issue with Christians, not because they said Jesus is a God. They have no problem with the idea of Jesus being a God. They believed in a pantheon of gods. Throw Jesus on the shelf with the thousands of other gods that we worship. What they had a problem with was when Christians started saying, no, no, there's one God. His name is Jesus, one Savior, one Messiah, and that excludes all others, including Caesar, and we won't worship him. Now that's a problem, and that'll get you killed. So look at how this keeps going, verse, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they confirmed with one another, conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. In other words, he's standing right there, jumping up and down. He used to not be able to stand up. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone. What? In this name. Speak anymore in this name. Here's what they notice about Peter. Peter is different. He's, he's not backing down. He's not denying Jesus. He's bold. And what explanation do they have for that? Nothing other than he's been with Jesus. What else could we attribute it to? He's healing people, he's preaching boldly, and the only thing we can point to is he's been with Jesus. In other words, Jesus changed Peter. No one else could and nothing else could. The spirit of Jesus in Peter made Peter what Jesus always said Peter would be. Here's the interesting thing. When Jesus renamed Peter, he gave him this name, which means rock. His old name was Simon. He said, your name is Simon, now it's going to be Peter. After Jesus did that, you know what Jesus never called Peter? He never called him Peter. Because he wasn't the rock yet. He always referred to him by his old name, Simon. Now he's Peter. He's the rock. And they say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And we'll see how the rock holds up. Look at verse 18. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Do you know what redneck, former fisherman, uneducated Peter just did? He quoted the philosopher Plato. <laughs> I didn't know this till this week. When he says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. That's almost a direct word-for-word -word quote from Plato's Apology 29b. In other words, one thing you cannot say about Peter is that he's an idiot. He's quoting Plato. They're going, all we know is he's been, he's been with Jesus. That's the only thing that could have changed him. And they take issue with this whole idea of in the name of Jesus. Just, just stop mentioning Jesus so much. So let me give you three big takeaways today, and then, then we'll really get this party going, all right? First of all, for us as a church, and then we'll, we'll get even narrower to like get really invasive and offensive, all right? 
Just as a reminder for us as a church, we believe the Bible is God's word. It's authoritative. No other book is. We believe this is literally God-breathed from him to us, and we are seeking to put ourselves under its authority. We will always value biblical authority around here. The second is this. We believe, and I will always teach, that Jesus, because of his sacrificial death and death-conquering resurrection, is the only way for people to be brought into a permanent right relationship with God. Listen to me. If we ever stop saying that, gather your things, and before you walk out the door, yell as loudly as you can, you're a sellout and don't ever come back. We will always teach that truth. The second thing is this, for families, let me ask you a question. Would you move your family into a house that you knew was going to fall down on them? Of course not. Of course you wouldn't. So let me ask you a question. If the cornerstone of your family is not the same cornerstone that's the cornerstone of the church, which is Jesus, what do you think is going to happen? What result and what outcome can you foresee? Jesus, he gave us this metaphor. There were two houses. One was built on a rock. One was built on the sand. And the consistent thing in the story is storms came against both houses. And when the wind and when the rain and when all of it subsided, one house was left standing and the other, you couldn't even see it anymore. Which one was left standing? The one that was built on the rock and his name is Jesus. Let me say this. Following Jesus is not your ticket to some buried treasure. Jesus is the treasure. That's what he is. So don't have this expectation that Jesus is your ticket to health. Do you understand the amount of conversations I have out in the lobby with people who are dealing with cancer in this church? People with great faith in Jesus who have cancer right now. One of, one of my old students, he was one of my students when I did children's ministry years and years and years ago. He's in college now. He's an athlete and he just got diagnosed with, with cancer and he's in this fight. But here's the reality. Jesus never promised him that if he built his life on him, cancer would never come. What he promised was if you make me the cornerstone of your life, cancer can come at you as hard as it wants and it will not be able to destroy you. And I hear that story out there almost every weekend. Jesus is not your ticket to fertility. Do you know the amount of conversations I have out in that lobby? I had a conversation over lunch this week with a friend of mine. Do you know how many people tell me their stories about multiple miscarriages and stillborn babies and terrible ultrasound appointments where there is no heartbeat? Something that can easily be overlooked in a church that's full of babies and full of kids. And those of us who have lots of kids, we need to be mindful of the fact that we got people walking around with us out there that when they see us with our kids, it's painful for them because that's what they want so desperately. And that type of stuff's overwhelming. And here's the reality. Jesus never promised any of us that we would see a heartbeat at that next appointment. What he promised was, listen, you build your life on me. Let me be the cornerstone of your life. And whether there's a heartbeat or not, it will not destroy you. Fathers, fathers, let me talk to you. How are you making clear that Jesus is the cornerstone of your family? Not soccer, not baseball, not good grades, Not nice things, expensive cars and business, none of that. Because here's the reality, something is the bedrock cornerstone foundation of your family. What is it? And if it's not Jesus, what do you expect to happen? If it's not Jesus, it will not hold up when the inevitable storms come. They will come. Let me talk to you. You, me, us specifically. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him? Do you believe that Jesus came, and when he was on that cross, he became your sin and your shame and your guilt, and through him and only through him, you can become the righteousness of God because of what he did for you? Do you believe all that? See, I think 
I think we miss just how sufficient Jesus' sacrifice for us was. And some of us, we miss this because of just how we're wired. And a lot of us, we miss this because of how we've been taught. And it's a lie from the gates of hell. But here's what a lot of us think, okay? A lot of us think that Jesus, when he died on the cross for our sins, filled our grace cup to about, oh, 60% full. And because we think this way, we go, well, that's not a bad deal because he did more of the work. So all we got to do is 40% of the work. So we spend our lives thinking, okay, so I just do some more good stuff and eventually I can top myself off. But the problem is we also seem to innately understand that we do bad stuff and all of a sudden, uh uh-oh, I'm back at a deficit. So I got to do more good stuff, but then I do more bad stuff and then I try to do more good stuff and we get in this terrible exchange. It's like being on a treadmill. And what we miss is the fact is what the Bible actually teaches when Jesus went to the cross and paid our debt, he paid it to the full. See... So, so this is what I love about baptism, and this is what I love about what you're about to watch, okay? Because baptism is this picture of this overwhelming sufficiency of the gift of God in Jesus, the grace that he gives us. I think it was Philip Yancey who said, water is, grace is like water, it always runs to the lowest point. I don't care how low you think you are right now, you're not lower than where grace can reach you. So I got, the, I got this buddy. He's going to be down here right now here in a minute. His name is Michael Kane. He's been on staff for years. And when he baptizes people, he does it with authority. Like he leaves no doubt. So if you line up, if you line up over here with him, sign the waiver. All right? Sign the waiver. You, I don't know what can happen, but I know you're forgiven. All right? So here's the reality. Baptism doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. So if you believe all those things that we just talked about, do this not as a symbol of what you've done for yourself, but of what Jesus has done for you. Come down here and be baptized today. If you've been baptized before and you understood what you were doing, you don't need to be baptized again, but let this be a reminder at this campus, at West Campus, of what Jesus has done for you. Parents, you cannot do this for your kids. This has to be their decision or this means nothing. You don't do this to get anything. You don't do it to get closer to God, to get a better life, to get anything. You do this because you've already been given something and his name is Jesus and so when you come down here what they're going to do is they're going to ask you do you believe in the name of Jesus do you believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God he's your Lord and he's your savior and if you say yes they're going to say that I now baptize you in the name of the father in the name of the son Jesus and the name of the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit that name Jesus that has tripped people up has become a sanctuary and a place and a cornerstone that's worth building your life on for over 800 people already this weekend. Welcome to the party. So let's all stand this campus and at West Campus. At this campus, line up on the walls like everybody's doing at West Campus. Come down front and they'll show you where to go. You guys get to have baptism out on the patio on a beautiful day in the mountains. I am jealous. And so let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll get this party going. God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. God, we can lose sight of the fact that many people have given their lives to your cause and never seen 800 people get baptized and we're seeing this in one weekend. God, all because of you, because of your great name, the name of your son, Jesus. It's in his awesome name we pray, amen.